I shouldn't be up here. I should be back in school on the other side of the ocean. Yet you all come to us young people for hope. How dare you? You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. And yet I'm one of the lucky ones. People are suffering. People are dying. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction. And all you can talk about is the money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you? For more than 30 years, the science has been crystal clear. How dare you continue to look away and come here saying that you are doing enough when the politics and solutions needed are still nowhere in sight. You say you hear us and that you understand the urgency. But no matter how sad and angry... Well, that's Greta Thunberg. And uh, she was addressing the United Nations there. Uh, Greta has been in the news a lot in the last couple of years. Uh, she's being often called the angry activist. Now, to be fair to her, uh, she says she's not an angry person. She's actually a happy person. But she needs to express anger, she says, to attract attention to her cause. But angry activism has become a very common thing in our society. And it's leading uh, to a problem in young people, sadness and depression and thoughts of suicide. In 2021 uh, stats, across all teenagers, all groups of teenagers, almost three in five teenage girls feel persistent sadness. Sad all the time. Girls are twice as likely to be depressed as boys, and one in three girls said that they had seriously considered suicide. It's a crisis in our society. But when you divide teenagers along political lines, a study released uh, only in December of 2022 showed that those who identify themselves as woke liberal teens are far more likely to be depressed than those who identify as conservative teens. Now, Joseph Backholm, uh, writing on this, uh, he theorized that it was because of what the woke liberal left focus on. And this is what they focus on. The American dream is a sham. Climate change is going to kill us all. Systemic racism is eternal. If you're not anti-racist, you are racist. The critical race theory says you're racist simply because of your skin color. You were born racist. And if you don't admit that you're racist, that means that you are racist. And injustice somewhere is injustice everywhere. And you are responsible personally for the injustice that happens everywhere and even for previous generations. Modern liberalism demands that we be aware of the problems, not only that we be aware of the problems, but it demands that we be fixated on them. And they say that we can fix all of our problems through political action. And so it demands that we bully and manipulate our way into solutions. 
And then add to that is the world's going to die in the next pandemic and we have to legislate our way into health and safety. And add to this all the wars that are going on and then there's climate change, the earth is going to heat up and uh, destroy life. But it's just not the woke liberal left that is angry. The right is also angry, often against the left. It's fear-driven. And many are afraid. And it's all exhausting and depressing. But being exhausted and depressed has become a virtue because to be exhausted and depressed means that you actually care about the problems which you cannot fix. And since the world's problems will never cease, the moment for contentment, rest, and gratitude never comes. And it's only the ignorant and the apathetic who don't care that can actually afford the luxury of gratitude or contentment. Well, that's the summary of the article. But in summary, what it's really saying, you are a good person if you see the hopelessness of the world and you devote your life to fixing the hopelessness, but in reality your cause is hopeless, but you're going to fix it politically anyways. That's the message. No wonder teens are confessed depressed. Now as we go into Peter, what a contrast to this he gives us. As Christians, we are the people of hope. No matter what our circumstances, no matter how much we suffer, no matter what shape the world is in, no matter how hopeless the world is, we are the people of hope. Now, it's true we live in depressing times. But we're not the first people to live in depressing times. And as we looked at in a previous message, the people Peter was writing to were living in very depressing times, often far worse than ours. And what Peter's trying to do is change our focus, change our focus away from our suffering, change our focus away from the hopelessness of our world, and to the hope that is ours as Christians. And so the, the question of how do we live out the gospel in such depressing times, the answer is we live out the gospel with hope. And so in verse 3 of chapter 1, he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so he says, in his great mercy, God saw our hopelessness. Without God, it certainly is hopeless. The best that this world can live for is that they're going to change this world into a better place as they envision it. Yet that better, better world is all a fantasy. Mankind for thousands of years have been created in a better world. But it never happens. The world is still a place of suffering and injustice because they want to change the world, but they don't want to change the human heart. And if you don't change the human heart, you will never really change the world. In fact, without God, this world degenerates. It does not become better. And so it becomes unachievable, and deep down they know it. Having done their best, the world is still going to be a place of problems. They have no way out. 
But Peter is saying that God in his great mercy gave us a way out through a new birth into a living hope. The hope that we have is not only the best answer for a hurting world, it is the only answer. John talking about this said, how great is the love that the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. We are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. And so Peter and John do not advocate fixing this world. Rather, they advocate that you fix your hope on what is to come. We have a living hope. When Jesus appears, we will be like him. This is a hope that they say has an immediate impact that is, drives us to seek to be like him now. The one who has this hope purifies himself just as Jesus is pure. Has that immediate impact. So going back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us a new birth into a living hope to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power unto the coming of salvation that is to be revealed in the last time. And so what Peter is saying, we're to face the problems of today through the eyes of tomorrow, of what is coming. Heaven is coming with a great inheritance that he says can never perish, spoil, or fade. I find that so many Christians know so little about heaven. Some may remember the old song that said, Heaven is a wonderful place filled with glory and grace, but what does that mean? They don't know. What is this inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade? Far too many Christians, it's simply, I'm saved. I know really little about heaven. But I really don't care as long as I'm going there. They aren't excited about heaven. They, this really isn't a hope. They aren't excited about it. Because they're ignorant of heaven. Others see it as boring. Many years ago, I was teaching a teen Sunday school class, and one of the girls said, I don't want to go to heaven. And when I asked her why, and she said, well, it's boring. There's no adventure there. I like adventure. In heaven, all you do is you sit on a cloud and strum a harp for millions of years. <laughs> that was her concept of heaven. And for many people, they have a similar concept of heaven. For many people, it's just, well, I want to go there because it's a better place than hell. And that's all they know. No, we're, to, we're supposed to anticipate heaven. One day heaven will be the new earth. We will live pain-free in wonderful new bodies. There will be no sin there, no temptation, no desire for such things. You'll be able to run and skip like a child again. No sorrow, uh, there will be joy and happiness. There will be so many reunions with friends and family. Celebrations and parties. A new earth with all that it will bring. You know, when I get to heaven, I want to build another sailboat. And I want 
to feel the breeze tugging that sail. I want to walk out in my backyard and be able to pick a ripe peach from a tree that I planted ages ago. You know, God took me away from farming and I enjoyed that so much. Maybe I'll farm in heaven for a thousand years and then try something else. After all, I have all eternity to try new things. Can you ever plumb the depths of God's knowledge? I believe heaven will be us eternally learning and growing, expanding our knowledge. The best of all, though, will be that face-to-face -face relationship with Jesus, where you can literally go and sit down with him and talk with him. You know, Peter is saying heaven is to motivate us, is to capture our focus, not the things of this world. Don't let that capture your focus. And don't let the mess and the problems and the suffering we're going through capture your focus. It's the thought of heaven with its inheritance that's to capture our imagination, and that's what carries us through the suffering of this world. We're to be like children coming up to Christmas time, and there's just that anticipation of opening those presents under the tree and enjoying all the wonderful things they contain. It's this anticipation that gives us hope in the midst of our problems. With no anticipation, there's little hope. Perhaps this is why so many struggle with hope. They have little anticipation. Then in verse 6, Peter says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. He's taking their thoughts back away from what's to come, back to what's happening right now. They were suffering grief and all kinds of trials. It's our rejoicing and our hope that carries us through the grief of our trials. Suffering reduces our hopes to one true hope. But it's not just our hope of what's coming that carries us through the suffering of today. Suffering actually has a purpose in our lives today. And it's because our suffering has purpose that we can rejoice in it. So verse 7, he says, these, talking about your sufferings and trials, he said they have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. There's nothing worse than suffering that is meaningless. And it's when life becomes meaningless that we lose hope. We become depressed. Life is not worth living. If we can truly believe that our suffering has purpose, then we can endure a lot. When I had my knee replacement, the MCL, the back of the knee, it broke. Which means they had to repair it or I would have had a very loose knee. And so to repair it, after they repair it, it meant that uh, during that period when normally you're to be moving that knee, keeping the range of motion while it's healing, I was in a brace for six weeks, keeping it immobile. And they knew full well that when I came out that it would be all healed and be, I could move it very little. It was pretty well locked up. And when that brace came off, 
and my knee was healed straight. Then I was put into a process where I had to take tear all that healing. I literally had to tear up the scar tissue, tear up that healing in order to regain motion. And the nurse, as she was explaining the process, she said to me, if you thought you had pain when your knee was bone on bone, and if you thought that the knee replacement was painful, that was nothing. Your pain begins today. <coughs> My physiotherapist was a Christian. Uh, he was a big man with a gentle heart, and I sometimes I would just think of him as the gentle giant. And uh, before we began, he says, Don, he says, do you know how Jesus felt when he was crucified on the cross? And I said, no, I can only imagine. He says, well, you won't imagine after today. When I'm done with you, you're going to know. <laughs> and thus began the months of being crucified. But, you know, I could endure it because it had a purpose. I could force myself, and literally I had to, Force it to rip and to tear. Because I had that purpose of going to walk pain free and I'd be able to walk again. But if we don't believe in the purpose to our pain, we reject the pain and we seek to avoid the pain. And so Peter says, rejoice in your sufferings because there is a purpose and that purpose is related to your faith. And he uses gold as an example. And so gold uh, symbolizes the most precious, valuable things of this life. Yes, there are more valuable things, but over centuries, gold has symbolized that which is valuable. And so gold, in whatever form it's in, is valuable. But it's only useful when it's gone through the fire and is being purified. Heated until it's melted, until it's a glowing molten metal. And through that process, they bring out all the impurities. And they make gold into something that's useful and more valuable. But the point that Peter is saying is that the fire, the suffering, so to speak, for the gold purifies it and increases its usefulness and value. Now, Peter says gold only has a temporary value. But God is working in your life that same process through your suffering to purify you. And the work that he's doing there has eternal value in relation to your faith. Your faith has eternal value and will never perish. Your faith is more valuable than anything on this earth and God uses our suffering like a fire in our lives to purify our faith. And so rather than pursuing the things of this world, we ought to be pursuing a pure faith. And God wants to have that pure faith. And so he's going to use suffering as a tool to purify your faith. Now, when we understand this, we then can rejoice in our sufferings. James says, consider it pure joy when you suffer. Why? Because when you face trials, the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance brings you through to maturity and completeness. Paul said, we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us because you see God's love poured out in your life. 
Your suffering may be directly sent from God. Your suffering may be caused by other people of this world. Your suffering may even be your own fault from your wrong choices and foolishness. Or your suffering may simply be from living in a sin-cursed world, fallen world. It doesn't matter. God does not waste your suffering, whatever the source is. He wants to use your suffering to purify your faith. So Peter says, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which pierce, uh, perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. And so this is our hope and suffering in the midst of a depressing world. God is purifying my faith, and he's proving it genuine. You know, every time we suffer, we face decisions. Am I going to draw back into myself, into misery? Am I going to draw back into depression and into protecting myself? Or do I use the suffering to draw near to God, depending on him for strength and courage and wisdom? depending on him to use this for good in my life to purify me. It's when I choose to draw near to God that it proves that my faith is genuine. But when I allow suffering to take me away from God, it shows my self-centered approach to life. It actually shows my lack of faith. You know, many people are angry when God allows them to suffer. How dare you, God? How dare you allow me to suffer? They even may say, well, God doesn't care. If God cared, he wouldn't allow me to suffer. Or they often think, God has rejected me. Punishing me. That's a totally self-centered approach. It's not God-centered. And it leads to depression. Now, God can be the source of your suffering. Hebrews 12 tells us that. God says that he will spank you. But he doesn't do it to punish you. He sends it there to discipline your life, to guide you into what is good and wholesome and true. And actually, it's proof that I'm his child and he loves me. But suffering doesn't just prove that my faith is genuine. Peter goes on, he says, your suffering, the end result is that it will bring praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. And so the question is, praise, glory, and honor to who? Well, first of all, it will bring praise, glory, and honor to Jesus Christ himself. When he comes and your life is fully revealed, it's going to fully reveal his wonderful work in your life, the hidden things he has done, the wonderful things he has done, all the things that he's done to design to shape you and conform you into his likeness. There's so many things that uh, we do not even know and understand what God has done in our lives. God's work in you is far greater than you know. And when Jesus is revealed, it's all going to be revealed and we'll give him the honor and glory and praise for what he's done in our lives. 
But it's not just Jesus who's going to receive glory and honor and praise. Jesus said, uh, rejoice, talking about being persecuted, being suffering. He says, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. As God works in you through suffering to bring you through to a genuine faith, a growing relationship, he's going to reward you for that in heaven as you respond in the right way. The Bible also says that Jesus is going to share his inheritance with us. We're going to be fellow heirs. When he is glorified, we will receive glory. And so as he brings glory to himself through what he's doing in your life, you will share in that glory. You know, he rewards us so greatly. Paul said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed in us. What you're going through this morning may seem unbearable, but Paul says that's nothing in comparison to the glory that he's going to give you. Paul also in 2 Corinthians said, Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And so you think of the athlete on the podium as they're putting that gold medal around that athlete's neck. They've gone through years of suffering, of pushing the body to the limits, of sore muscles, of giving, them, giving up on everything else in order to focus on that. Because they believe that that moment when they stand on the podium is worth it all. And that's the thought that we need to be having as we go through this life. One day we will stand on that podium with Jesus. And we'll share in his glory. And it'll be worth it. But there's a, there's a third purpose to suffering. In verse 8, he says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so what Peter is saying is you allow God to use suffering in your life. As your faith grows, your belief becomes firm, your love for Jesus will grow. That's the third thing that happens. And as your love for Jesus grows, you experience a growing joy. He says an inexpressible and glorious joy. How do you explain to someone that doesn't believe? That's a thing that you have to experience yourself before you can understand it. You must walk through that path of suffering, allowing God to do his work in you to understand. You know, for decades, there's been a segment of Christianity that's preached a prosperity gospel. And the teaching is that God wants you to have health, wealth, and happiness that you just have to have enough faith and you can be wealthy. You just have enough faith and you can be free of suffering. And on it goes. And if you don't have health, wealth, and happiness, then that's your fault. You just don't have enough faith. Dave Dervecki was a pro baseball pitcher at the top of his game when he got cancer in his pitching arm. And to stop the cancer, they had to remove half of the deltoid muscle in his arm. The doctors told him, you'll never pitch again. But he was determined that he was going to, and he suffered through it and persisted. And he eventually got back to where he could pitch pro baseball. 
First game he pitched, he won that game. But in the fifth game, there was suddenly just a loud crack when he threw the ball and he'd broken his arm. The cancer was back. And he had to retire from baseball. And they had to remove his arm, his shoulder blade, and part of the collarbone to contain the cancer. And Dave Dravecki, writing about this experience, he said, one night a woman came up to me and told me how that she was once down and out with a drug addiction until someone told her about Christ and she became a Christian, was healed of her addiction. And she went on to tell him that uh, God wanted all of his children to be 100% healthy. And Dave, Dave uh, Dravecki said this, but does he? What would God's children grow up to be like if all the bumps in the road ahead of them were made smooth? He continued, cancer introduced me to suffering, and suffering is what strengthened my faith. Yet that woman implied that I was suffering because I didn't have enough faith. She seemed to be saying, have enough faith and get the life you want. But that struck me as making God into some kind of cosmic vending machine, where if you push the right button, you'd get a sweet life free of suffering. You know, the prosperity message brings hope to so many. But it's a false hope. And in the end, it crushes so many of those who hope in it. And Peter's message goes totally counter to that. We will suffer in this world. Yes, it's okay to try to avoid suffering. And if you can alleviate your suffering, do it. If you can find help, get it. The Bible says that we're to bring our prayers. God wants to hear our desires. It even says, if you're suffering through sickness, you can go to the elders and ask them to pray for you, or you'll be healed. God is not against removing suffering in the right circumstances. But God is far more concerned about the purity and genuineness of your faith than he is about your health, wealth, or happiness. Your faith is of more value than your comfort. That's why Paul said, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. And so, yes, all things is even your suffering. God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called to you according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. That's the purpose. God will do whatever it takes in your life to conform you to the likeness of Jesus. In verse 31, Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? When you're suffering, God is not against you. He's saying he's for you and walking with you. Worldly thinking is, I'm suffering, therefore God is against me. Godly thinking is, I'm suffering, therefore God is for me. That's why Paul said, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. This is the mindset that Peter is advocating. It's only with this mindset that we can understand the rest of the book. As strangers in this world... How do we live out the gospel in the context of suffering? Are you willing to embrace the process of suffering that leads to holiness, a lifelong process? You know, steel starts out as iron ore. That iron ore must be mined, 
It must be crushed. It must be put into the fire and melted. Often, many times, it's but it's purified within the fire. The impurities are removed. Again, it's, remel it's melted and carbon is added to improve its strength. Again, it's heated red hot and then quenched quickly in water or oil. It's now become very hard and brittle. Again, it's heated to specific temperatures and then let cool slowly to temper it, to give whatever desired hardness that they want. And then often again, it's heated to form objects or it's put through presses to stamp out desired objects. You know, it's a picture of God's work in our lives. Bringing forth a pure, genuine faith that results in glory, honor, and praise. And we have a choice in this. We can embrace God's process in our lives or we can resist that process. And how you respond determines greatly your experience of this life and your experience of heaven throughout eternity. Let's pray. Father, we all have to say we don't like suffering. And yes, it's okay to seek to alleviate suffering. We should and we can. But there is much suffering that we face that uh, comes from the world, from our own actions even, or just living in a sin-cursed world, suffering that we can't do anything about. And in that suffering, you want to use that suffering as a process of de defining our faith, purifying our faith. And I thank you that as we allow you to do that work in us, it leads to just a a deeper relationship with you and a joy that we would never experience without it. I pray that each of us this morning would just embrace that process that you want to work in and through their lives through suffering. I pray this in Jesus' name.